Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the College Football Writer with the Associated Press. This week, I am joined by former Notre Dame star offensive lineman Aaron Taylor, who now works as an analyst for CBS Sports. We will go in the trenches with the former Lombardi Trophy winner and talk about offensive line play. We'll discuss some big-picture college football topics and ask Aaron about his alma mater, the Fighting Irish coming off a playoff appearance. We are a week away from conference media days and the official start of talking season in college football. There is still plenty of summer left, but you can feel football in the air and sort of see it off in the distance if you squint a little bit. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts and just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, please give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, my great pleasure to uh, bring in a former All-American at Notre Dame, a Lombardi Trophy winner, a Super Bowl winner, a former first-round draft pick. Man, you were pretty damn good at football, Aaron Taylor. <laughs> oh, man. My uh, former coach, Joe Moore, didn't seem to think so. Um, <laughs> I, I thought my name was God Dang It. Uh, this <laughs> got, is a podcast. Really, I don't got, know yeah, I I'm going to say God Dang It. You know what? I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll, give you a little, I'll give you a little leeway there. We tend to sometimes – we get a little blue on here sometimes. So give okay, us the okay. – give us, the, give us maybe not the full – blank you son of a blankety-blank, blank-blank. <laughs> Uh, but I had the pleasure, man, of, of playing at some pretty prestigious and tradition-rich programs, starting in high school out in California, playing for Bob Latticer and De La Salle that had that 13-year win streak and 151 straight games that they eventually made a movie about. Then got uh, a scholarship to the University of Notre Dame, two years removed from the 1988 National Championship. In 1990, my freshman year was the first year of the NBC contract which, as you know, was unprecedented at that time. And what a great group of guys and, and run that we had there. And then getting drafted to the Green Bay Packers. I won the Lombardi at Notre Dame as a senior and then won the Lombardi Trophy in the franchise in the NFL that was named after Vince Lombardi that he made famous. So it, uh, I, I, I've been pretty lucky to be where I've been. And somewhere along the way, I fooled them enough to make them think I was pretty good at football. Well, and now you're pretty good at talking about football because you are uh... – one of the voices of CBS Sports on doing games with Carter Blackburn, Mountain West, SEC. Uh, you guys still do the midweek shows on CBS Network, right? You do the um, you and Rick Neuheisel and Randy Cross and that crew. What's the name of the Inside show? Inside College Football, Ralph. Thank you very much. Demerits for it's me. Okay. We'll it's, edit it's that Tuesday out. Tuesday nights. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> we'll edit that out and make make it as if I didn't I didn't forget. The, the great show that you guys do. Cause I wa- listen, I watched the show. I mean, I, I was able to tell you all the all the clowns that are on the show, right? <laughs> like... and, and that's that's the truth, man. We uh, we take the game quite a bit more seriously than we take ourselves, and that's why we enjoy what we do. And, and frankly, I think that's why we're pretty unique in, in the way that we deliver it. Adam Zucker does a great job. I mean, who's better at Rick Neuheisel? He's like a, a one-man vaudeville show. 
Brian Jones. He's kind of the the guy that he BJ is one of those interesting cats, man. Because when you talk to him, you're like, this dude took way too many shots to the head. <laughs> but then he'll say something, and you're like, did you get a fifteen hundred or sixteen hundred on your SAT? Like he's off the chart smart, but I think he kind of downplays it. So I learned something from BJ a lot, and he and I. You know, him being a linebacker, me being an offensive lineman, we butt heads from time to time, but in, in a playful way. Uh, and Randy Cross being a college football Hall of Famer and the run that he had with San Francisco, man, it's, it's a good show, a good mix. We ha- like to have a lot of fun, and we even get our picks right every once in a while. Jones is a is a seriously interesting character. The first time I ever met him, I was on, I was a guest on Tony Barnhart's old show. <laughs> and Jones and BJ used to sit in with him a lot. It's hard to sort of describe this without having lived through it. I don't know if there's a person who has a more, when you talk about a booming voice, when you work in broadcasting, as you do, you sort of learn to enunciate, right, and speak up and and sort of speak in your loud voice. But, man, BJ's loud voice is just, it, it can fill a massive sound studio. He just speaks so loudly, naturally, and it was just like intimidating the first time I met him because he's always so super friendly and outgoing. And you're like, hey, how you doing, Ralph? And it's like, whoa, this guy has got a lot of energy. Holy cow. So Dude, he, what you talking about, Ralph? What, uh, what, what you know about college football? How, how you think UT is going to do? Texas going to win? What's up, Ralph? <laughs> Uh, you've uh, you've clearly spent enough time with him that you got him down. I, I'm not sure if he'll agree with that, but you definitely got him down. So, listen, one of the reasons why I brought you on, or I brought you on to talk a little about college football in general. We'll hit to some uh, national topics. It's almost talking season. We are recording this a week away from when almost all the conferences start their media days next week. AAC, Big Ten, SECs, and does its big dog and pony show in the middle of the week. I think that's about six or seven days now. The SEC's <laughs> media day goes on. I think they have a day for each coach at this point. <laughs> it's building to that. They're not quite there yet, but I think we're probably three or four years away from that actually being the case. But before we do that, when you come on, I've had you on before, I always like to geek out a little bit with some offensive line talk. Because nobody's better than you about that. Maybe Cole, maybe Cole Kubelik, uh, the former Auburn lineman who works for ESPN. He's pretty good at geeking out with offensive line talk. And the Joe Moore Award was the brainchild of Aaron Taylor. Joe Moore Award has been, this is this will be year five for the Joe Moore Award. That's right, year five. Celebrates and honors the best offensive line in college football. Not the best offensive lineman, but the best offensive line. It's the only major award that goes to a unit on a team as opposed to one player. And you have been the driving force behind that. Let's talk a little offense, some cool offensive line stuff. And the one thing I wanted to start with, I had a coach recently. Well, I'll even tell you the coach because I, I wrote about it in the story. So I was down visiting Tallahassee to talk with Willie Taggart, and there was probably no Power 5 team in the country that had a worse offensive line than Florida State. They, they know they had some issues on there last year. For multiple and, years running now. And, and it, I think it, they hope that it hit rock bottom last year. They hope that that was as bad as it was going to get, and they, they added some grad transfers, and maybe some of those younger guys have some experience now, and they hope it will trend in the opposite direction. So one of the things Willie Taggart told me without getting into great detail, because coaches tend to sometimes be a little shy on giving the details, is we think what we are doing this year with Kendall Bryles and being more Baylor-like in our system will 
hide some of our deficiencies or at least play to the strengths of some of our players. When you hear that, again, without you, you know, you don't have intimate knowledge of what their scheme is, but when you hear that, what does that make you think that they could do if you're a team that has limited depth and some inexperience to sort of work around the deficiencies of your offensive line? I'd be pissed and offended. <laughs> okay. I mean, I, I'm just being straight up as a player. If I heard that, that would motivate me. And, and maybe that's part of his uh, psychology to get those guys going and light a fire up underneath them. But what I'm hearing there is moving away from an ability to be physical at the point of attack, which is any good team that is championship caliber that I've been on or witnessed one at the line of scrimmage. Offensive and defensive line play. You look at the last four national championships with Alabama and Clemson, they've split those. What are the two unquestioned strengths of the team? Yeah, they've got some skill guys. When you look at the NFL draft and what they turn out from an O and D line standpoint, I think that record kind of speaks for itself. It's probably a good smart move for Florida State to do. They've got three guys coming back that started uh, a year ago, so they've got some inexperience. But they used nine different offensive line combinations last year, Ralph. And we know that the key ingredient of any good offensive line is continuity. It's cohesiveness. It's that chemistry where you're having to communicate and work next to somebody on every single play. It's a consummate team position within the consummate team game because of all the collaboration that goes on, all of the calls and the combination blocks and communication. Sometimes it's verbal if you're lucky, if you have time. Other times it's on the fly and you just have to feel it. And when you look at what happened with Florida State and their inability to run the football, Cam Akers didn't rush for a thousand or excuse me, a hundred plus yards to like game 10 or 11. He was a guy that had a thousand yards as a true freshman, but he was basically neutered last season as that entire offense was. So under Kendall Browse, you think they're going to open it up and you got to give the Baylors a lot of credit. There was a couple years ago when we started the Joe Moore award, we were looking at their yards per uh, attempt and it was like 6.7, 7.2. And you were looking at these rushing yards and like, how in the hell are these guys doing it? You expect to throw the tape on and see these big five guys moving the line of scrimmage. But when you did, as you turned the tape on and saw four wide receivers, you know, twins on each side outside the numbers running against empty boxes. There were five or six defenders in the boxes with big empty splits meant for a lot of room, which is why Baylor was successful running the football. So that's a good strategy. My guess is their rushing numbers are going to go up considerably because they've got the talent. It's a good move. That's why we're seeing a lot of the hurry up, no huddle spread is to hide the deficiencies of offensive linemen. We're starting to see that in the NFL, quite frankly, as well. And there are a lot of people that are concerned about the lack of ability of offensive linemen to do their thing. But as an old school dude, Dan, I'd be pissed if I heard my head coach say that we're going to have to work around some of our deficiencies because basically what he's calling us out and saying is that we don't have the physicality or the toughness to play physical football, which is what Willie Taggart does. That Gulf Coast spread was run first, control the line of scrimmage, run, run, play action, big plays. So he's having to adjust working around the pieces of the puzzle that he doesn't have. And if I was in that O-line room, I wouldn't be happy. There are different ways to be dominant on the offensive line, though. I'll put it this way. If you feel like you don't have the individual physical, physically talented or physically dominant players, but you feel like you have, again, maybe a decent group with a little bit of cohesiveness, what are the ways you can emphasize maybe that cohesiveness when you're not necessarily sure that you have the individual best guy at each position? 
Well, I I don't know if you can be dominant. I think you can be effective. And those are two very different things. I think what we're going to see from Florida State this year is a more efficient, effective offensive line that allows the play to get started so that they're really experienced and and talented athletic skill set can do what it needs to do to be able to move the football a little bit more efficiently than they did struggling uh, a year ago. But being dominant? No, I, I think it's you know, trying to do something where you're hiding the deficiencies, eventually people are going to be able to find what those weaknesses are. And Boise State, right out of the gate, might be one of those defensive units that has a proven knack of getting after the quarterback. They play Virginia in week three. They're going to pin their ears back. They get to week seven after a bye, play Clemson, even though they lost all four of those guys to the NFL a year ago. Their backups are pretty damn good. They're going to see Miami later on in the year. There's going to be some teams that play. They're going to test them up front. So are they going to be dominant? Not in my opinion, but I think they can be more efficient and therefore have a higher rush total than they did a year ago. But they're not going to do it in the old school fashion that I think guys like me are accustomed and enjoy watching. They're going to position block guys, get people out in space and create wide open boxes, which I mean, to their credit, will make their job a little bit easier. Okay, so uh, last year, Oklahoma if I remember correctly, was the Joe Moore winner. And I, the only reason why I can't remember, because Oklahoma has always seemed seemingly one of the finalists. They've had a great run of offensive linemen. What has made Oklahoma so good at developing offensive linemen and keeping a really high level of play along that offensive line? And it'll be, challenge, it'll be a challenge this year because they, they threw four guys into the NFL draft. So, but there's, there's still some talent coming on the back end. But what has made Oklahoma so effective at developing offensive linemen? Coaching. I think it's Bill Biedenbow. I think he does a phenomenal job of coaching his guys. And one of the areas that, as a committee, we look at, and you mentioned Cole Kubelik, you mentioned Jeff Schwartz, Duke Miniweather, Lance Zierlin, uh, Dave Harding, Mike Golick Jr. I mean, it's a who's who of guys that played the position and also talk about it for a living. We watch film on a weekly basis. And we have guys that kind of focus on their own areas uh, and then highlight, say, hey, Take a look at Oklahoma, and about week three or four was when they started getting onto our radar. And when you put the tape on, what you saw was dudes finishing their blocks. Ralph, my opinion is that there's three parts of a block. There's the beginning, which is the contact power and how much pop you get. You have the middle part, which is the sustain, and then you have the finish at the end. You have to win two of those three to have a successful block, to get a plus, to do your job. You don't start out well, but you can sustain it and finish it. The back can skirt by. If you start it out well and create enough of a a crease, but then end up falling on the ground late, sometimes they can run through arm tackles. You got to win two of those three. Where Oklahoma excelled was in their ability not only to finish, but you could see the desire to do it. Dudes running downfield looking, what we call looking for work. They were had, they wanted trouble. They looked for trouble. They welcomed the contact, and they were finishing plays. And because of that, you saw what their offensive production was. We all know how great their quarterback was running around doing what he did. But there was a physicality that Oklahoma team that allowed them to have the season that they had a year ago, and that started in Bill Biedenboe's room. And we got it right. Four guys drafted in the top four rounds off their starting five is a big reason why they jumped out on tape. We saw that before most other people saw it because we're watching the nuances. We're watching, we're not following the ball on tape. We're watching the pit version where it's just the offense, uh, offensive line against the front seven of the defense. And there were things that you saw 
from that group that we just didn't see anywhere else in the country. I'll let you uh, brag on some other guys then here. You're right. Biedenbaugh has established himself as maybe maybe the elite offensive line coach in the country, certainly in the, in the discussion for one of the best because they have just been so good for so long and with different players coming in and out of there. Who are the other ones that sort of stand out to you, the other offensive line coaches that – you know, it's it's not just that they're recruiting the four and five stars; it's that they're they're getting the most out of those guys. Well, it's interesting. I think Sam Pittman at Georgia uh, is among the elite. He's on the Mount Rushmore of active offensive line coaches. You look at the consistency and the physicality that his units have had over the last three or four years, going back to 2015, the inaugural. Uh, year of the Joe Moore Award and what his offenses did and his units did in particular when he was at Arkansas. There's a consistency and a track record. When you put the tape on a 2015 Arkansas, it looks just like the 2018 Georgia tape. Guys stepping in unison, the combination blocks, the big body, low center of gravity, weeble wobbles coming off the ball, (laughs) creating space, getting to that next level. And when guys have an opportunity to put a guy on the ground, they take it. They don't turn away from contact. They relish it. I think he does a really good job, and specifically because the physicality and the fundamental elements of what it is he brings to the table. Ryan Silverfield from uh, Memphis does an excellent job. He had a bunch of misfit toys there last year at Memphis, but you could not deny when you turn the tape on the physicality element of what it is he did at that position. I got to say this, Notre Dame lost Harry Heastan to the Chicago Bears a year ago. He was the best offensive line coach that I had seen in college football, probably since his mentor and my coach, Joe Moore fundamentals is the key to successful offensive line play repetition 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 success isn't pretty it's dirty hard work and especially on the offensive line and the good ones adhere to those fundamentals they don't get too cute they find drills at work they never practice anything that they're not going to do and apply on the field and they rep it over and over and over and there are some beautiful coaches out there that does it and as uh, an award that gets to to perv out on offensive line play, man, I got to tell you, it, it's it's been fun to watch these guys turn out the offensive lines the way that they have. Okay, you, you mentioned your your alma mater, Notre Dame, and Harry Heastan. You're right; he he left for the NFL, replaced with Jeff Quinn, who was a, a, a an assistant who's been around a long time, has coached under Brian Kelly. I think he was an analyst there, so he stepped into the role. He had very big shoes to fill. He was also losing. Two of the best offensive linemen in the country <laughs> in McGlinchey and Quentin Nelson, who both of them stepped right into the NFL, became starters, first-round draft picks. And Quentin Nelson may be one, the best guard in the NFL. I mean, I, arguably one of the best guards in the NFL as a rookie. So, I'm, Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I'll, let, I'll, let, I'll no, let you finish. It's unbelievable. Yeah. So Jeff Quinn had a tough job last year, <laughs> considering who he was replacing as far as the coach he was stepping in for and who he was replacing as far as the manpower. Notre Dame's line wasn't nearly quite as good last year, but when you look at when you when you sum that up, do you see was it you know, maybe what they lost from Harry Heastan? Was it just a lack of talent? Was it some injuries? They lost Alex Bars. What did you see out of Notre Dame's offensive line play that would make you either optimistic for things to get better this year or maybe a little pessimistic that they still are going to be missing Heastan? Well, I think it was a combination of all that, honestly, Ralph. Notre Dame took a step back on the offensive line a year ago because they lost a, a coach that for nine years had turned out you know, multiple first rounders and the Zach Martins and the Ronnie Stanleys and uh, Chris Watt. Uh, 
the tremendous players in, in McGlinchey and, and Quentin Nelson, as you mentioned. I mean, it's a damn who's who of offensive linemen in the NFL. And I said before the draft that Quentin Nelson was not only the best offensive lineman available, he's easily the safest pick in the draft. And I think his season a year ago, being an all-pro as a rookie, bore that out. So you lose two top players that are multiple-year starters, three-yard starters, two top nine picks, and your coach, that's going to affect anybody. So so Coach Quinn's job wasn't easy out of the gate. Then you have injuries on that offensive line with some youth and inexperience, and yeah, there were some challenges. This year, I predict Notre Dame's offensive line is going to get back on track and look very familiar to the one that won the Joe Moore Award. Not quite there. They've got a lot of work to do to get there, but it's going to look more familiar and old school than we've seen before. With four returning starters, some good youth at the running back position, a proven quarterback, this is a group that's going to be cohesive. And I think this offense this season, as much as they want to push the ball vertically down the field, which is something they struggled with a little bit a year ago, and I think we saw that in the Clemson game, it was small ball this is going to be an offense that once again relies on the run game they're just going to be quite a bit more efficient at it this season because a they're more talented they're more experienced and they have more leadership up front Notre Dame I think has a chance to be in the running for the Joe Moore award this year and I wouldn't have said that at all with what we saw on tape a year ago but it was understandable but I expect coach Quinn to get these guys back on track and they should be players deep into the season maybe we'll circle back around on Notre Dame at one point but I did want to mention this it does seem like the one place where Notre Dame and Kelly has consistently recruited at a pretty high level is on that offensive line. They've been having a hard time finding that really stud running back. They've had some very good ones, very good ones, but maybe not at that level of, you know, the Alabama running backs or the programs that we think of as contending for national championships. But it does seem like Notre Dame has figured out a way to get at least a handful of four-star offensive linemen into that program every year. It's a great place to start uh, winning up front. I mean, behind the offensive line that won the Joe Moore Award with mm-hmm. McGlinchey and, and Quentin Nelson, you and I could have probably combined for a thousand yards apiece with some of the holes that they were creating. But you bring up a good point. And, and what's interesting is that Autry Denson moves on, uh, takes a, the head coaching job at a Division II school, FCS, I believe. I, I don't. I should know the name off the top of my head. Yeah, I, think he was, I think he was a Charleston Southern, possibly. Charleston Southern, yep. thank you. Yeah. And as great of a coach as he was, and he was very well respected, one of the things that people often talked about behind the scenes was his inability to, to be as effective as a recruiter as he was as an on-the-field coach. So I would expect some of the talent at the running back position to start to improve where it's maybe more on par with what we've seen from the offensive line. They've got some good youth back there this year. If Jafar Armstrong can stay healthy, he's somebody that's got some wiggle and some burst. I was encouraged last year by what I saw out of Dexter Williams. He elected to to move on and take his talents to the next level, if you will. But somebody that can hit that extra gear and go, as you alluded to, you see it all over the country. Alabama perennially does it. LSU perennially does it. Notre Dame's really strong struggled there. And it's not just about the offensive line play. It's our job up front to get the play started, but it's very helpful if you have a back that can take it to the house. And Notre Dame just hasn't had that guy, to your point, and that would be really helpful for an offense that's looking to establish the run so that it can create some opportunities vertically. Let me ask you about another team that is going to come into this season with a highly touted offensive line. You mentioned Sam Pittman in Georgia and Georgia's Not only are they very talented along the offensive line, but they're going to be massive. They're just going to be enormous and have a chance to maybe lead lead the team to a national championship. They were going to be that good on the offensive line, but we haven't become we become accustomed to looking at the Pac-12 teams and saying, "Well, 
maybe they don't stack up along the offensive line quite as well or along the defensive line as the same way. But that seems to be a place where, well, you know, the Pac-12 teams are a little bit behind in the trenches. And then you see what Mario Cristobal has, Ooh, at, has at Oregon. You got guys who are not just good college players, but some pretty good pro prospects as well. Um, talk to me a little bit about what Oregon's got back on the offensive line, because I think that's a big reason why people look at Oregon and think maybe that's the best team in the Pac-12, even though they still only won eight games last year. It's crazy, Ralph. We were watching tape, and Jeff Schwartz, our Pac-12 guy, does stuff on Sirius for the Pac-12. He, of course, played at Oregon. And about week three, he was sending us tapes in, dude, watch your boy Mario's group up front. And we're like, what? Now, Mario Cristobal was the offensive line coach at Alabama who won the inaugural Joe Moore Award. So physicality was the the trademark of, of that unit. And, of course, you know, they had a pretty good back that won the dang Heisman Trophy that year in Derrick Henry. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were physical. And when you watched Oregon through week six last year, they were the best unit in the country. There was no question. And not just from a run-blocking standpoint, but from a pass-blocking standpoint. And then they lost their left tackle a true freshman, Panay Sewell, and the wheels started falling off. That was the first of many dominoes to fall for Oregon's team that saw them lost some close games and ended up with a nine-win season, but disappointing by any standards and certainly the expectations there. This year, they bring back all five guys. If, if Oregon isn't a finalist from the Joe Moore Award, something has gone wrong. They were impressive. I hadn't seen physicality in the Pac-12 out of any unit like that in many, many years. And that's really what Mario, when we talked to him early on, was like, I want to build another Alabama out west. We've got the facilities. We've got uh, the resources. We've got this brand. Kids love playing there. And you're like, man, that ain't going to be possible. But that's all about trench play. And that's where he's starting is on the offensive line. The defensive line certainly has some work to do, but they're making their way there. It was impressive, and he's one of the guys that did really well. And the guy that followed him, Brent Key, who was at Alabama, who was a finalist, is now at Georgia Tech, is another one of the the great talent developers in the offensive line. I left him out when we were talking about that earlier. But Mario, what he did in, in with his unit and what he's insisting that they do is impressive. And I expect Oregon to win the Pac-12 behind their offensive line and explosive offense and controlling the line of scrimmage which is ironic because we're accustomed to this hurry-up-no-huddle spread kind of position ball, which is where Oregon kind of made its heyday. That's not going to be the case for the Ducks this year. They're going to challenge you at the line of scrimmage, and I don't think there's going to be very many defenses within that league that are going to be able to step up to that challenge. I'm almost afraid to necessarily hit you up with team-by-teams here because I know you haven't dove into your film work quite just yet. But um, it does look like Iowa's going to have a very strong line again. At least it's, it's two tackles. Both have a chance to be NFL players. I think it's Worf and, and uh, Alaric Jackson. You know, Walker Little out at Stanford has a chance to be a top 10 pick. You know, Stanford was a team, you talk about physicality in the Pac-12. They made a name on that for a little while and probably won some games by being more physical than the rest of the Pac-12. At a time when a lot of the Pac-12 teams, especially Oregon, were winning with speed, David Shaw's team was making hay on being more physical and being that version uh, of dominant. And I think Stanford maybe got away from that a little bit. 
I don't know if they maybe got away from it. Is they maybe they didn't hit on a, on a few of those offensive linemen like they were before. But I know David Shaw is really trying to get that program back to its roots, so to speak, which is that yeah. intellectual brutality and a guy like Walker Little leading the way at left tackle. There's no question, man. And and you watched Stanford last year. It was hard to watch, honestly. It just it wasn't what we were accustomed to seeing. And, and again, Jeff was all over that. And we all were. I mean, there's certain units that you kind of go into the season, you look at, you're like, all right, I can't wait to watch these guys play based on what they did a year ago, the conversations you have with their coach after the spring going into the summer and what it is they have to work with. And there was a disconnect, man. And when you look at what Stanford did up front on the offensive side of the ball, they were so banged up so young, so inexperienced, multiple different combinations, it was a challenge. And that would be a challenge for even the best offensive coaches and even the deepest of rooms. They were on, you know, guard and tackle, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. I mean, it was bad at times. Injuries really was a problem for Stanford a year ago, particularly on the offensive ball, offensive side of the ball. But that offensive line was really hurt from that standpoint. They're one of the perennial powerhouses, a team that is committed to controlling the line of scrimmage. That's that's how they kind of beat the system, if you will. They don't have necessarily the athletes and the ability to recruit the same type of players as maybe other schools do. So a lot like we see with the academies that rely on the run game via the option, Stanford has kind of done that with, with with shifts, trades, and motions, multiple tight ends, having seven guys at the line of scrimmage, having dudes that are 360 pounds and an 85 jersey dressed up as a tight end (laughs) so that they can move the point of attack, man. I expect Stanford to to get back to a more familiar look on tape offensively from what they've done, and I think they're going to fare better in the conference this year as a result. But injuries really were a problem for them a year ago, which is why they didn't perform to anybody's expectations. Okay, Aaron, I want to take a very quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. We'll be back with more from Aaron Taylor, CBS Sports, right after this. AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, Aaron Taylor from CBS Sports is joining me. We've been talking a lot of offensive line stuff. I want to go back to Notre Dame for a second, then I want to ask you a couple of other sort of big-picture college football things because it is your alma mater, and I know you keep a keen eye on on what Brian Kelly has done there. You know, a couple of years ago we were talking about, can Brian, is Brian Kelly the guy? Is he going to get fired, right? They come off of that four-win that four season. He revamps his staff. He brings in a new strength and conditioning coach, which obviously has made a world of a difference the last couple of years. Playoff spot last year, 10-win season the year before with a team that may have been better, actually, in some ways than the team that made the playoff last year. It looks like they have finally reached a level of Notre Dame where I don't know if Notre Dame's going to make the playoff every year, but it does look like Kelly is recruiting and has the pieces in place there to challenge for the playoff, to sort of be at least in the conversation. Listen, this year they got to play Michigan on the road, Georgia on the road, Stanford on the road. They may go 9-3 and three and still be one of the top 10 or 15 teams in the country. But do you feel like, as a Notre Dame alum, he's gotten it to a point where you're sort of comfortable with what the program looks like sort of writ large. You might have to help me out with that. I got a 700 on my ah, SAT come on with now. the writ large do, do, you, do you think that this looks like a program built to sustain success at a relatively high level? Again, I understand it's probably not going to be Alabama, Clemson. I know you want it to be. It's probably going to be a little bit behind that, but do you think they're able? There, he's got it now to where he'll be able to sustain a, at least a playoff contention every year. He's won ten games 
three of the last four years. I predict Notre Dame is going to win double digits again this year, not make the playoff. Everybody in the Notre Dame fan base is going to be up in arms and extremely disappointed, and it will be then that we will know that Brian Kelly has arrived because the (laughs) expectations are to make the playoff. The consistency year in and year out that Notre Dame has needed, that it's accustomed to, but hasn't had, is finally starting to come. We all had our questions, myself included. And you got to take your hat off to Jack Swarbeck, who hung in there. But I want to give credit where credit is due to Brian Kelly himself. I'm privy to some of the things that went on behind the scenes. And at the end of the day, Brian Kelly is a man who is willing to do a self-scout, look in the mirror, and take some steps to change the way that he operates. He is always tinkering and adjusting to refine and improve what it is he does. If you've noticed, Ralph, we haven't seen the outburst and the bright red face that looks like it's going to explode. I don't remember what that Disney movie was with the five emotions, but he was the dude whose head would go on fire. But he's, he's kind of a gentler, calmer Brian Kelly. And because of that, the entire building is more relaxed. And there was a swag with that team last year that hadn't existed before. And I'm talking to support staff that are telling me this, not just the coaches, not just the players, secretaries, people in the equipment room, people in the training room that I would talk to. There's a different feeling in the building. Guys are confident. They, they know what they're capable of. Nobody's on edge and pins and needles and eggshells. I think the evolution of Brian Kelly and his ability as a coach to develop not only players but himself is a big reason why they won 12 games a year ago, had a chance to compete for the national championship. And it's going to be a big reason why I think double-digit wins from here on out should be the expectation for Notre Dame. Are we at a point now where it is – well, I'll I'll ask the question this way because this is the way it gets phrased to me often. If I gave you – Alabama and Clemson or the field to win the national championship, which one are you taking? Alabama and Clemson. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I it, think I think it is fairly obvious, right? It has been for the last four years. <laughs> right, right. Until until I mean, somebody else does it, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if you want to be the champ, you got to beat the champ. And, yeah. and so far, nobody's been able to beat the champ. They've, they've each stumbled their toes a little bit. And I tell you what, man, I was watching that national championship game a year ago and watching what Clemson was doing to the Alabama Crimson Tide. It was to me, it was like the OJ chase, man. It was like you're just watching the TV with your mouth open, thinking to yourself, is this really flipping happening? Is this really taking place right now? It was a boat race. Watching them do that, to me, was the, the, the stake-in-the-ground moment for the Clemson program. Not that they needed it, but that they no longer had to, to play small and talk about everybody being on the Roy bus or whatever it is they call and kind of being the, uh, the other Rams. They were a physically dominant team that dominated Alabama. These two programs are two of the best we've seen in quite some time. And I've been on record as saying this. Nick Saban and the dynasty we're seeing at Alabama is the single greatest dynasty in the history of this sport. And I think we're also seeing that with the New England Patriots and what those guys are doing up there. At the same time, on both levels, I think we've got the ability and the opportunity, the luxury to see football perennially played at the highest of levels. And it's not just what they've done. It's how they consistently do it. And they've earned that. And they, the programs have been supported, and they have the players that come in, the coaches that developed, and Saban's had to do it with literally entire turnovers of his staff. It's remarkable. They are so far ahead 
of everybody else in college football. It's almost shameful. Except Clemson. But they are two of the Except best Clemson, at what they've right? done. Right, right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Alabama and Clemson being so far yes. ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it's it's remarkable how far ahead they have gotten. Now, I, listen, I, I think at some point, and you, know, you, you spend a lot of time in SEC country as well, I think at some point Georgia – is going to win a national championship. I just don't think you can recruit at the level that Kirby is recruiting. And they're close. I mean, they, listen, they've played two very close games with Alabama. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be this year. Maybe it'll be next year. But it seems like everything is in line for, at some point, Georgia to pick off Alabama and stumble into one of these national championships. But again, until it actually happens, I'll, I'll withhold judgment and, and wait until it actually does happen. I'm telling you what, if I were a wagering man, I'd put some money on Georgia. Yeah. That that's somebody that right. is at built, some like, at some point, right? That this is yep. probably gonna happen at some point. It's gonna happen at some point. And Georgia this year plays Notre Dame. They play Florida, of course. They're on the road at Auburn, play Texas A and M, and very likely are gonna meet Alabama once again in Atlanta for the SEC title. Now they've taken them to overtime and lost that national championship game a couple years ago, played them tough in the title game a year ago. This is a team that is close, but no cigar so far. But to your point, I think within the next two years, we're going to see the student beat the teacher and for the first time have a protege of Nick Saban's topple him. What I'm seeing, and, and that's both a testament to I think what's taking, what, not what I think, what I'm observing taking place at Georgia but I also wonder how well that container that has been so tight in Tuscaloosa can continue to operate with all of the challenges that are thrown its way. It is incredible the job that has been done and what is required to win consistently like Alabama has done. But I think there, at some point fatigue starts to set in. And that's why I think the timing of this thing, we talk about relationships and timing being an important thing. Well, I think it is in football too. Georgia's trending up. And I wonder if this Alabama program has started to plateau and it's going to be Kirby smart that knocks off his good friend and predecessor and mentor and Nick Saban to start the beginning of the end for Alabama. Right. Cause it doesn't necessarily mean Alabama is trending down. It's just that no. if Alabama has reached a certain level that maybe it can't go any farther. And if, if now Georgia has reached that level too, then they are simply then at some point they could become equals and you could argue they are very close to being equals now. And at some point, if you're equals, well, one guy's going to, you know, eventually Kirby's going to get one. Kirby's well, going to manage to pull one out here. There's no question. I mean, look what Auburn's done with Alabama. With much less talented teams, they've been able to close that gap and find ways to to pull off the impossible. You take the same situation, and granted, that's a rivalry, so it's a slightly different animal. But make no mistake about it, within the Athens locker room and that community, they know who they're building to beat. Mm -hmm. They know what's at stake. They know how close they've gotten. They know how hard it is sometimes to get back there where you have to have the right things fall in the right place at the right time and stay healthy and have a little bit of luck aside from being pretty damn good. They've been close. That is a hungry football team. To your point, Alabama is not trending down. I think they've plateaued. But because of Georgia's ascension, they're closing the gap. And I think within the next two years, we're going to see this Georgia program overtake Alabama. Right. The big difference between Georgia and Auburn. Auburn, it's, it's always felt like 
an event when Auburn beat Alabama, but a singular event. Not necessarily Auburn has eclipsed Alabama or Auburn 100%. is now at Alabama's level. It was like, okay, on this day, Auburn was better. But with Georgia, it certainly looks like they are building towards being a mini Alabama. That's what that their goal was when they hired Kirby Smart. We want to be Alabama East, and they're certainly building in that direction. Let me hit you with one more thing. It'll be the first college football season in a few years, about I think eight years without Urban Meyer involved, uh, at least on the field as a coach. I can't imagine stepping into bigger shoes than Ryan Day is stepping into at Ohio State. You're literally replacing one of the great coaches in college football history. You know, I don't know if you've had a chance to be around Ryan Day at all. He's a pretty impressive guy. He's definitely a very different kind of guy than Urban Meyer. And I, I mean that just as what it is. He's just not as sort of an intense a person as Urban Meyer. But he's also got a reputation of being a really darn, darn good football coach. Uh, what do you think it'll be like to replace Urban Meyer? And what can we expect out of Ohio State this year? It's going to be tough, but I think what we saw early on in the season when the suspension was playing out, that, that Ryan Day is somebody that, A, not only is a good football coach, but understands the uh, the makeup of the team. And I remember listening to a couple post-game interviews that he was given, and and we were in the the green room and, and all talking. We're like, that dude's going to be a head coach one day. I don't think we all assumed that it would be at Ohio State the very next season. But you could tell that he had the makeup and the moxie to be able to to lead a football team. And here he is. He's got a unit that he's very familiar with. But those are going to be some big shoes to fill. Now, I also read that Urban Meyer is coming out with a podcast to talk about leadership and and some other things, which uh, th- there were some folks that were scratching scratching their heads on that, maybe myself included. Man, everybody's but, got a podcast. I mean, if they let me have a podcast, anybody can have a podcast, Aaron. <laughs> All you need is a microphone. <laughs> I think what's going to be interesting is that Michigan this year uh, looks to be built in a way that they could contend for the title. We think that every year, and, and Harbaugh, as credit, has a couple 10-win seasons, but Ohio State had beaten Michigan seven straight years. And when you look at Michigan's record against the the better bunch in the Big Ten, against Wisconsin, against uh, the Ohio State, against Michigan State, it's not very good. So Michigan, if they're going to win, is going to have to do something that they haven't done for a long time and I was thinking about this the other day man if like you're Jim Harbaugh and the first time you beat Ohio State is when Urban Meyer left is does that kind of put a little bit of an asterisk by it I think yes is the answer no let me answer that no just beat them (laughs) and nobody will care if you just beat them you have to beat them (laughs) no I I I hear what you're saying and, and you got a point but ultimately I think you know they've gone so long without beating Ohio State, and really even before Urban uh, got there, they very rarely beat Ohio State. That I don't think those I don't think the the Michigan fans are going to quibble. Me may look at it and think, oh well, you got them without Urban, but man, Michigan fans they they don't care who's there; they just want to beat Ohio State. Winning is hard, man. To your point, you're absolutely right. I think it'd be tough for Harbaugh, but of all things being equal, he'll take it too. Hey, Aaron, uh, this was great as always. Uh, good luck with uh, the Joe Moore. When, so when do you start digging in on that? Like, in, do, you, do you do a little preseason work on that, or do you start the tape evaluation when the season starts? 
No, we we start having text messages. We got these all these threads on Twitter and and via text message about sending clips that we all watch tape. Like we're we nerd out on this stuff, man. So we're watching it all all off season. But we kind of have identified some units and, and groups we're going to keep our eye on. But there's always that's what's the the different about our award as well. There are always teams and units that surprise that come out of nowhere that nobody gave a chance to that end up impressing. And Memphis was one of those squads a year ago. Army looked really good. Air Force over the years has had some really good offensive lines. So it's fun to kind of watch the story uh, right itself as the year goes on. But we've already started to kind of get our ducks in a row and have a plan about who we're going to spend the most time looking at and, and, and taking an eye on and evaluate. And we talked about a lot of those earlier on in this podcast, but it's fun to kind of watch this thing shake itself out. Aaron Taylor, former Notre Dame great, All-American, Super Bowl winner, and you can catch him on CBS once a week on uh, Inside College Football. You can catch him doing games. You can just about catch Aaron everywhere. Hey, listen, Aaron, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you doing it. Enjoy the rest of your summer. And, uh, yeah, start stretching and warming up and getting yourself ready for football season, big man. I will, buddy. I'm already in the gym doing push-ups. Nice. Very nice. All right. Thanks, All right, Aaron. Al. And now three and out. First down. Kansas made some news this week, and as usual, it wasn't good for KU football. Running back Puka Williams was suspended for the first game of the season after the legal system played out on a domestic battery charge. Williams reached the domestic violence diversion agreement with local prosecutors back in March. Basically, if he steers clear of further trouble, the charges could come off his record. Williams was one of the best running backs in the Big 12 last year and maybe will be the best offensive player on Les Miles' first Kansas team this season. So I'm not one to rant and rave about length of suspension, and I certainly am a proponent of giving young people second chances, but a one-game suspension, a game against Indiana State at that, seems a little light. Second down, I love computer ratings and advanced analytics that project college football teams, anything numbers-based I find really useful. I compare and contrast to come up with a consensus, and then they help me form opinions as I research in preparation for the season. I am here for all of them. But man, ESPN's FPI, with Tennessee at number 15, seems a bit strong. Uh, Very interested to see if the Vols can take a big steps forward in year two under coach Jeremy Pruitt. I know it was a thin team last year that seemed to wear down, but being outscored by a combined 88 to 30 by Missouri and Vandy to end last season still has me feeling skeptical about a turnaround for Tennessee. Third down. One more thing about computer ratings and advanced analytics projections. Uh, They are all pretty skeptical of Texas this season. Why? The Longhorns had some great wins against high-level competition in 2018. It was a breakout season, and I think it's fair to say that Texas is back, at least back to being pretty good. But they also played a ton of close games, some against opposition that a truly elite team would have been expected to blow out. I'm leery of Texas taking another significant step forward this year. What I think is more likely is another season of around nine wins that could look like a disappointment relative to where Texas starts in the polls, 
but in actuality represents a small step forward toward a real breakout in 2020. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, at Podcast One, just about anywhere you find your podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.